You're listening to TIP. Colleges, universities, hospitals, all these different corporations, they get willed real estate. People that are alumni will put in their will real estate, rental properties, all this sort of things. They don't want to become a landlord. They, that's not their business. So I was actually able to do seller financing because what colleges are really good at is taking money on a, like a monthly schedule. They're experts at that. On today's show, I talked with Mike Stoller about how to get into hotel investing with no or very little experience, how Airbnb and VRBO play into Mike's strategy on hotels, how COVID made an impact on his business in the short term, and how he expects it to continue to play out over the long term, and much, much more. Mike Stoller is a former commercial airline pilot, Navy veteran, and co-founder at Gateway Private Equity Group, a real estate investment firm whose portfolio has included hotels, multifamily, and residential properties. Mike also hosts the Richer Geek podcast. Going into this episode, from my research, I knew Mike and I would be talking about his strategy of investing in hotels, but what I didn't expect was the conversation about being able to buy real estate from colleges. It's actually a pretty neat strategy and one that I hadn't heard of even after doing over 200 interviews. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Michael Stoller. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. Today, we do have a guest interview back on the show. Today, Michael Stoller joins me. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Robert? It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got into real estate. Yeah. you know, Back, I call it the PG days, pre-Google days is when I uh, got started. And it's interesting, you know, when you got started way back then, Robert Kiyosaki's book was still there, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We read it and I was like, oh, okay, this is the best thing to get me from working a real job, which is what I wanted. But during those days, I went to a seminar, read the book, I actually went out and bought eight units. That's the easy part, right? You know, buying it. And then, uh, well, what do you do now? What kind of paperwork's involved? Is there a lease? Uh, is there notices? How do you do things? I couldn't do any searches. And when you're in a small town in Indiana, there's no one to reach out to. So I, failed miserably. I didn't know what to do. And there's no one that I could reach out to. Fast forward, I gave up on real estate, became an airline pilot. You know, I was in the Navy for a little while. And then fast forward to about 2007, 2008, right, you know, during the crash, that's when I was like going, okay, now there's going to be opportunities. What I did prior to that, you know, to learn, you know, if I backtrack a little bit, what I did is when you fail at something and you know it's the right thing to do, you can sit there and say, well, woe is me. I'm never going to do this. This sucks. Or you can learn and figure out how to do it. And what I did is I actually went to work for a property management group to learn that piece that I didn't know. And that's just one of the things you do. If you want it bad enough, go out and get the knowledge. I couldn't go on this podcast. I didn't have anything to learn. So I had to go and work. So fast forward, you know, we got back into it and got a fourplex. And I went from a fourplex to 
you know, hundreds of units of multifamily, two hotels, a dozen single family residences in about seven years. So it was kind of, once I got back into it, it was like all in. What did you do for the property management company? Like what was your job? I was a property manager. What does that entail for the listeners that are into multifamily? It was, it's a multifamily property manager. That means I am in charge of that property. I have a couple of salespeople. I have a maintenance guy. I handle all of the requests from the tenants. I look over the leases. I handle the evictions. It's every process of being, especially being a landlord for 50 units or 80 units or 100 units. And that got me all the knowledge I needed. Now I knew, okay, here's, here's what a lease actually looks like. Here's what the eviction process actually looks like, handling customer complaints. And then you have regional managers, you have all these up the chain that you can ask questions to. And you know, I had managed, gotten up and I was managing a 600, 650 unit apartment complex. Did being a property manager show you things that scared you and kind of wanted to keep you out of going back into real estate or did it more excite you? <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, that's a good. That's a good question. There was a lot of scary situations and just dealing with people. But what I learned is because they were such a large property management, they didn't just property manage. They actually owned the complexes. They owned around eight thousand units. Okay, so this was a property management and also owners. But what it taught me though is of all the scary situations that could ever happen and tenants suing you or, or things happen, they always had great paperwork. And they always said in the teaching, you know, when I was when I was learning, my area director said, look, stuff's going to happen. But as long as you're backed up with your paperwork and your knowledge and how you handle the things, things are not going to happen. So even though there were some scary things, I was like, that's what it taught me. As long as the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, you'll be okay. Did you become a property manager after you were already a pilot or did being a pilot come later? Being a pilot came later. You know, being a pilot was just a dream of mine. So I learned all the stuff that I needed to do as far as a property management group. But then I was I was taking my lunch breaks and learning how to fly again. I had originally gone to school to be a pilot, but then I couldn't afford it. So that came later. And I just, you know, I had enough money. I wanted to fulfill my dream, became an airline pilot. And then once I was a pilot, that's when I got back into it. Now I had money to actually buy things again. The reason I asked that was because going from being a pilot to a property manager, a lot of people would consider that as probably like a step down. And so I think, <laughs> sure. there's, a, I think there's a lot of people who have jobs right now that they may not love, but you know, going to do something just to get experience so that they could actually do something they love is a step back for them. And they don't want to take that step back. So I was curious to see kind of what that timeline looked like yeah. for you. So what happened was I was flying and I flew for a commercial airline and I was in Houston and during this time period, I had actually worked my way up and I was doing both. I was working full-time as a pilot and I had some apartments. I had worked my way up to a 28-unit apartment complex while I was still flying. And I had a property management group do that. When I was flying into Houston, I hit a very bad, it's called a wind shear. You know, I'm not going to get into details, but I got injured. You know, I actually tore my forearm trying to stay control of the airplane as I was landing it in Houston. And so I was on disability. I was on a leave of absence. And that's when I was able to finally, you know, when, when I wasn't working, looking at what this property management group was doing for my property. And I was using my past experience working for that property, you know, another property management group. And I was like, you know what? These guys are just nickeling, diming me to death. 
you know, no wonder I'm not making any money. So I was, I was kind of doing that and I, and I fired him. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be on disability for six months or so. I'm just going to do manage it myself and see what I can do. See if I can, you know, recall all that experience that I learned uh, years before. And I started making money and it was making money so well that I was able to continue. The thing is, is I never was able to get back to the flying. The arm was just too far damaged. So my career was kind of over at that time, at that point. I could have kept going and tried to do it, you know, rehab and all that sort of stuff. But I just knew it's like, I get that juice is going again with, with the, the real estate. And I was like, oh, you know what? I just took, I can do this. I can go back to work and have this property manager group nickel and diming me to death, or I can just do it full time. And within a year or so, I was able to flip that into a 50 unit. And then it was just off to the races. I was like going, you know what? I love flying, but if I keep doing this, I'll just buy my own airplane and fly it, you know, because people may think that's a step back, but people listen, real estate is, it's up to how much you want to make and you can do it on your own time, your own schedule. It's to me, it's definitely an upgrade. What were those first eight units that you purchased? And how did you get into them? Did you just use money that you had saved up from a job you were working or what did that look no. like? No, you know, here's another thing that, you know, people that are starting out or even people that don't even realize that you can do this. In my small town, there's a college and I went to that college and talked to their real estate guy. Those real estate guys, they handled the, just the property, the campus, the real estate aspect. What I didn't realize, I just happened to stumble upon this guy, is that colleges, universities, hospitals, all these different corporations, they get willed real estate. People that are alumni will put in their will real estate, rental properties, all this sort of things. They don't want to become a landlord. They, that's not their business. So I was actually able to do seller financing because what colleges are really good at is taking money on a, like a monthly schedule. They're experts at that. So they're like, you know, Mike, here's eight homes. And they were, it was a fourplex and four single family homes that I got seller financing through a college. That's really interesting. I've done probably a hundred plus episodes just on real estate and 250 episodes total of this podcast. And I've never heard of that strategy. Is it something that's still happening today or was that just back when you were getting started? No, it's you go to any and every university in the United States and people will to their alma maters, everything. I'm cars, real estate, homes, multifamily. They get willed all that stuff because that's their love. You know, that's the charity that they want to give to. So reach out now to these universities and colleges because they do not want to be a landlord. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. When it comes to, there are some like bank owned properties. I know a lot of times what the bank will do is they'll work with a select handful of real estate agents to handle selling those properties. Is that how colleges do it? And if not, how do they sell those properties? Well, they sell them to people like me that have just asked to buy them. So they're not real estate agents. They'll hold on to them. But here they have a relationship with these investors now because they don't want to go to banks because that, that's commissions. Those are fees. They don't even want to use a real estate agent. They would rather, they have five or six guys that they know that will buy the houses, seller financing or cash because then they get some interest. And well, it's kind of like you know the wholesalers that have their list of people that they know will buy the houses. It's more like that. They know they have these five or six or dozen whatever amount of investors that they know will buy these houses, and that's who they use. I think that this idea is going to be really, really popular with people listening to the show. I mean, I'm interested in it myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into it. Who do we contact at the colleges? I mean, you can't just call up a dean and probably not going to be the admissions office, right? So who are we calling at the colleges to get in contact about something like this? Yeah, there's going to be someone that's in charge of that property. You know, the, if, especially if it's a multi-campus, there's going to be a real estate guy that may not be his only position, but he'll be in charge of like the, the paying the property tax. You know, there's going to be someone that, for me, it was, he was actually the real estate guy. He was in charge of that property paying all the taxes, paying all the, and when they expanded, you know, buying the different houses to put dorms, you know, there's that guy that does that real estate. 
And I don't, it's going to be a different name. You just have to find, he's not going to be a Dean. He's just, he's going to be a corporate guy within the university. I was going to say, I wonder if it's someone in like the finance department, like a controller yeah. or something like that, just because how much like, your property taxes are probably going to go through that office and things like that. Yeah. In order for a university or college to expand, they're going to have to buy up land around the college or they're going to have to buy land. So they're going to have somebody, maybe a finance guy that's going to look into that stuff. They're not going to hire a real estate agent. So they're going to have someone within their department that's going to do that. Two of the biggest excuses or reasons that a new investor doesn't get started in real estate is that they don't have enough money or they're nervous because they don't have enough experience or something along those lines. And you mentioned that you failed with those eight properties. It didn't turn out great. So I want to talk a little bit about what you learned from those failures. I know you talked about how you got into property management, but from a failure perspective and how to handle failure and what it might mean to somebody who's listening to the show that really wants to get involved in real estate. They're just scared about what could happen with failure and how to deal with it. Tell us a bit about how you went through that. You know, it was hard. We put a lot of money down payments and then, you know, because of maintenance issues and all this sort of stuff, we just were just racking up a lot of debt. And it was a very humbling, very scary and it took us a while to get over it. But here's the thing is, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that real estate is it, or you're curious about it, but you know that this is where the millionaires are made. It's in the real estate realm. Being a pilot, I would still be stuck making X amount of dollars. I would not have a portfolio of around $20 million or more without real estate. Okay, So get over the fact that there is going to be failures. And making that first purchase is kind of like the big jump. Everyone has fears. You can have analysis by paralysis, right? I've talked to people that I go to these seminars with. I speak at seminars and I see the same person five years. Hey, have you done your first? No, you know, just one more seminar, just one more book, you know, and I'll be ready to jump in. And I look at them and I'm like going, you've just missed five years worth of buying power. The fears that we have inside of our head are true within our realm of thinking, okay? So they're true, but those fears are not real, okay? It's stuff that we make up. So inside of your head, this anxiety is real for you, but it's not the truth because everyone around you is doing it and they're succeeding, right? So you have to kind of get out of your own way. And that's what I learned I just had this deep down thing. I was like, real estate is it. Everyone I know that's driving around these nice cars or doing this or whatever, it's real estate. So that's what you have to do. And I always tell people, it's like, look, you can spend a lot of money and fail. And that means also spending, I know people spend $100,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars in seminars, haven't done squat. So you can spend a lot of money and not do anything, or you can spend the same amount of money and succeed, okay? Or at least try. I would rather spend money gaining knowledge and doing and succeeding than not doing anything at all. I want to talk a bit about what you're doing today. I actually have a friend and who's a fellow real estate investor who mostly does short-term rentals through mm-hmm. Airbnb, but mm-hmm. he's starting to buy small hotels and motels. I always thought that those types of assets weren't really possible for somebody, a smaller mm-hmm. investor or somebody without a lot of experience. How can someone get into hotel investing with very little or no experience? Do you think any real estate experience is needed before you get into something like this? 
That's a good question. Let me hit on two of the points. You don't need experience as long as you have someone with you that has experience, okay? And that, that is in every asset class. Thinking outside of the box, I wanted to get into hotels just because in the multifamily world, the cap rates are going down and down and down and down. And I sold an apartment complex that I had for 10 months and I made $860,000 off of it. And I had a choice. I could buy something at a four cap or I could do something else. Well, how do you do something else? And this is another thing, just like the university and the college thing, this is another thing you can do, everyone, to get into an asset class that you don't know anything about. What I did is I went to a, a friend of mine that was, had 15 years. I, I, he wasn't even really a friend. He was just an acquaintance. He had 15 years of hotel experience. And this is another important thing is getting into every networking group, every, anything you can. Soak it up, soak it up and meet people. And then these things open up. I asked the guy, I was like, look, I've got a deal for you. I want you to find me a hotel because I don't know anything about hotels. Find it for me. I want you to run it for me because I don't know anything about it, but you're going to teach me everything you know. And I'll give you a property management fee, but because you're helping me out and being my mentor, I'm actually going to give you a piece of the action, the ownership on the back end. And that's how I got into the hotel space. And it was successful enough that I was like going, okay, hey, now I can go out and buy. And another way that you can do it once you have experience is then you do syndications and, and funds and things like that. And you know, with the syndications, you're not using your own money you know, or very little of it. So that's how you can get into it. But you don't want to just jump in. You know, the hotels are a business. It's not real estate as far as like multifamily, single family homes. It's a small business that happens to sit on real estate. So the only real estate part is the land. Everything else is a franchise. You know, for me, I you know, Radisson's and, and Choice Hotels, it's a franchise. It's a business. I have, you know, 20 employees per spot. I have general managers. I have marketing people, salespeople. It's very different. It's a very different asset class. So when you say that you're investing in hotels, are you just buying the underlying real estate and then leasing it out to a major hotel chain that is operating it, such as like Marriott, et cetera? Or are you actually creating an entire business around this, owning the real estate and owning the mm-hmm. hospitality operations? So we do both. Well, I don't lease it back. So when, when I say I do both, what we do not buy is buy the land and then lease it back to Marriott. That's not really how it works you actually own that franchise. Okay. What I do do is I'll have one LLC that owns the land and I'll have an LLC that runs the hotel. So it is kind of like another company that is running the hotel. And then that LLC that's running the hotel leases the land from to the other one. And that allows me to save on you know taxes and things like that, because there's a, a rent charge and you get to deduct that rent charge. So that's what I do. But all the hotels that we own, we actually own the franchise. You know, we have to apply to Marriott. We have to apply to Radisson for this franchise, just as buying a Subway or McDonald's or anything, something like that. It's a franchise. You are operating the hotels, not just owning the real estate. Mm-hmm. Correct. We are, yes, I have an operating group. I have the management. I have the general managers. We're doing 100% of, of everything. 
Outside of just COVID, how have hotels performed during other times of economic uncertainty, say the Great Recession or times like mm-hmm. that? During the Great Recession, hotels actually did pretty well because the Great Recession, it wasn't like this pandemic. Great Recession hit only certain segments, okay? You know, businesses still traveled, businesses still, people still traveled. It was just a certain amount of markets that really hit. So they did really well. They do better, and these are why I concentrate in certain areas. And it's the same with COVID. I will only buy in states that are friendly to small businesses, okay? And I've learned during COVID, it's like, wow, okay, we never shut down any of our hotels because they're considered essential business for truckers and nurses and doctors to stay. And then there were some states that, bam, you know, within a month of COVID, everything just shut down, just restaurants, hotels, nothing. And I'm like, okay, thank God I don't have a hotel in those states. You have to have hotels in that type of a a state. And then it always helps that during COVID or during these pandemics, when people were out able to travel, they went to states that are considered, you know, kind of like vacation states. During the winter, no one was traveling to the Northeast, you know, but a lot of people are you know, traveling to Florida, Arizona, not California because it, it was shut down, but in you know, Nevada, Utah. So if you buy in certain areas and you make sure that, and that's another criteria, I didn't really look at the governance of the states, but that's going to be another one of my criteria to make sure that the state will allow us to stay open. How does Airbnb and VRBO play into your strategy of hotels? Do you see those as competitors and a potential downfall to the hotel industry, or are you utilizing them to enhance your business? That's probably the question I get asked a lot is, is the correlation between Airbnbs and hotels. I don't see it as a, as a big competition. Here's the reason. If you're a, a corporate traveler, and let's say you have five people traveling to Arizona for a conference, or you have 10 people, you're not going to stick men and women in a four-bedroom, five-bedroom house in a corporate. That's just not a good idea as far as anything when you're a corporate person. So you're going to put them in a hotel. So we don't have to worry about that. If you're mom and dad and a couple of kids, you're probably going to stay in a hotel also. So the only, re- the only segments I think that Airbnb takes away from our business, maybe the group of guys or, or ladies that are traveling for an event, you know, bridal shower, they're friends, you know, where you have four or five guys getting together with a golf trip, you have ladies doing a bachelorette party and they go travel, then it would make sense to go, let's get a four or five bedroom house and party. Or you have three or four kids and parents and you're going to a vacation type thing. That's where Airbnb hits us. But then it doesn't really hit our type of hotels. It would hit more of the resort style hotels you know, the big pools and, and, you know, tennis golf courses and all that sort of stuff. But when you stick with the limited service, the people that stay at our hotels, the blue collar, the truckers, the people just going from Texas to LA, and they're just spending the night in Phoenix, they're not going to be staying at an Airbnb. So are your hotels, those limited service hotels? Yeah. Yeah. What we do is limited service. If I did full service, just maybe like a one bar one little restaurant, one, one or two conference rooms. But I like the limited service. If you look at what kept the United States going during COVID, the truck drivers, right? Utility service people, those type of things. And they're traveling, the traveling doctors, 
the truck drivers are not going to be staying at these fancy hotels. They're going to be staying at the quality ends, the comfort ends, you know, the Hampton ends, you know, just the cheaper, no frills, because all they want is good bed, big breakfast, Wi-Fi. So those are the ones that are more recession-proof or the ones, the blue collar. Same, same thing with, with multifamily, right? It's You get that blue collar single family house or the multifamily house, and, and those are just good people to rent to. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. How do you find hotels to buy? Are you leveraging sites like LoopNet or is there a different way with hotels? LoopNet's kind of like the MLS. It's, if it's on there, then nobody wants it. The business is too hot to ever have to you know, go on LoopNet. It's not to say that you can't find deals. I've bought hotels off of LoopNet just because I thought that I could turn them around. But that's not where you find the deals, right? That's You go through off-market. I get emails 
through the big commercial firms, real estate firms that I'll have off market. And I get these, hey, we're going to market 10 days, 15 days, you know, see if you want to buy. So that's where you get the the opportunities. And that's like in any asset class, right? It's the off-market stuff. What are you looking for in your potential investments? Like what is your buying criteria? Great question because if you'd asked me that in 2019, it'd been completely different than now because of COVID. I do believe that whether we call it COVID or something, there's going to be a 2.0 or 3.0. There's going to be things happening in the future as far as pandemics. I just pray to God that that doesn't happen. But we now have to assume that five years from now or whenever, something else is going to come. So it has changed my criteria. I'm going to stick with the extended stays or the uh, limited service, maybe these light full service, you know, which is like what I said, maybe one re- restaurant, just a couple conference rooms. I'm not going to do the thousand square foot conference rooms, three restaurants, a bar, lobby bar, because those all shut down. Then I'm going to look at during COVID, what areas really did very well with the, in the hotel space. And those were just outside of major metro areas. When something happens, no one wants to be in a city of 5 million people when there's a pandemic happening. They're going to be staying on the outskirts of major metros. So we're, our criteria is going to be looking at just small towns, half hour outside of major cities that are along a highway. So truck drivers and traveling families can find it very easily. And how close is it to the hospitals? How close is it to you know these different things? And what that is called in the hotel business are drivers. How drivers are what drives people to your hotel. In the past, you say, well, I only need maybe you know one driver. It's in a ski resort or it's near a university and I'm just going to buy it. Well, what happens when the kids aren't in school during a pandemic and everyone's at home? No one's staying at your place. So you need, I want three reasons why someone is going to go to that hotel. And that's kind of changed my mindset. So that's kind of what we're, we're looking at. I know virtual assistants have played a big role in your life and your businesses. Mm-hmm. I actually use virtual assistants quite a bit myself. Talk to us yeah. a bit about why you started using them and how you use them in your real estate business. Yeah. You know, everyone that's new in real estate, you're going to get to that point where in order for me to grow, I need to hire someone to help me. You need to find your unique ability. My unique ability is analyzing properties and finding the properties and doing all these things. In order for me to grow, I had to find employees. Well, I was at the point where I couldn't afford especially now, you know, $15, $20 an hour, plus maybe what insurance withholdings. It's just, it's very expensive hiring someone. So I found virtual assistants and what I really like, you know, you can get some from Asia, which is very, 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 very popular. What I found is I loved virtual assistants from Mexico. They're on my time zone. I can actually text them or, you know, they're an hour ahead of me. I can text them and actually find them. They can respond to them. I email them and they say, done. You know, it's just, it's quick. I don't have to email someone and then they respond to me at two o'clock in the morning because they're in the Philippines. But as I said in the past, I do a lot of speaking engagements about hotels. And someone asked me that exact question, you know, how did I grow? How did I get employees? And I told them about the virtual assistants. And, you know, with our, us as entrepreneurs, I had maybe a dozen people come up to me afterwards and say, hey, can I get the phone number for the virtual assistant company? Can I do that? You know, how did you find it? And I'm like going, okay, give me 
at the end of the seminar, I'll give you all the information. So I called up my VAs in Mexico and say, hey, you have friends that the same thing? And they said, yeah. I said, here's the requirements, college educated, experience in real estate or call service or you know, handling phone numbers. And I actually created a company, an LLC, went back to them, say, hey, yep, here's a gateway VA. I own a virtual assistant company and I've helped all those people. And it's, it's a fantastic thing. If you can give someone in Mexico a upper middle class living by only paying $7 an hour and there's no withholdings, no social security, I mean, there's no taxes, there's no 1099. It's just so much better. I was able to grow so much faster by using these type of people and they want to work. They're just, they're fantastic people. And you, it is your employee. I don't, you're not paying me. You're doing the interviews. You're paying them. I just take a small finder fee and they're your person. And I've had VAs now for several, several years, the same person. So it's really, really cool. Do you have any habits or principles that you follow in your life consistently that you think not enough people do, but should? Yeah, you know, especially now during the pandemic, a lot of us are working from home, right? Once you get into real estate, you're going to get to the point where you're going to be working from home, where you're going to have your own little office. I do what's called a default calendar. The default calendar is this Monday, eight o'clock, I do this. Monday, nine o'clock, I do this. I don't check my email till 10 o'clock in the morning because I'm doing these other things. And then I prioritize my emails. And then, like Tuesday, eight o'clock, I do this. I don't allow myself to get on LinkedIn for more than a half hour at a time because I can get lost answering all the questions and doing all this. And all of a sudden, wow, you look up two and a half hours later and I've been on social media. The only way that you can really, really, really succeed as an entrepreneur, because you no longer have a boss, right? You don't have anyone looking down on you. You need that default calendar and you got to stick to it. No matter what, you know, there are emergencies, but stick to it. It's like, okay, hey, it's 930. I'm getting off Facebook or wherever LinkedIn. And I'm going on to now researching for my next project. And I'm going to do that for two hours. And I'm going to take a break, do that. And then always, 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 no matter how busy you are, schedule in fun time. That's another thing. When you start getting into being an entrepreneur, it's easy to work 80 hours a week. You know, I got to do this. I got to do this. I'm paying the bills. I got to, you know, I got to go to the hotels. I got to do all this sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, life is horrible. You know, it's like, oh, wow, I'm so glad I work on my own because now I'm working twice as much and having less fun. So make sure you build in golf, you know, Wednesdays, golf in the morning or work out, you know, build in that fun time. But that's kind of the biggest thing that I've done that's really changed. Another thing that's changed my life is sticking to that calendar. What has been the most influential book in your life? At the start, it was Kiyosaki's book because that's what introduced me. There's another book that once you start making money, it's kind of easy. It's like, well, you know, my goal is to, is to make money and make a lot of money. But then what happens? You spend the money and then you need to make more money and then you spend the money. And there's really no, no one to teach you that aspect of saving and how do the other people do it. There's a book that's called The Money Secrets of the Rich. And it's by a guy named John Burley. And this book taught me what is the difference between having a lot of money and then having a lot of freedom. People think that, man, if I just made you know, a couple million bucks, I'd be free. Well, no, because you'll spend $2.5 million. One of the phrases in that book is build a life that you don't need a vacation from. And I actually have that on my office wall. And what does that really mean? It's going to mean different, you know, different things to different people. But the thing is, is what do the rich people 
why are they rich? Why are they going to remain rich? Well, is it because they don't have any debt? Is it because they're smarter with their debt? Is it because they pay cash? That book really changed my life on how I looked at handling money. And that is what made me from making a lot of money in real estate to actually keeping a lot of my money. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. So Michael, what question do you have for me? My question is, what motivated you? I always like knowing this. What motivated you to do what you're doing? I guess I would need to know which facet of what I'm doing do you mean? I mean, honestly, I'm doing a lot of different things. So is it and you may not know everything, but real estate, I, I, you know, I'm a real estate investor. I have the podcast. I'm writing a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a couple other things too, uh, you know, big into fitness, things like that. So I guess which specific facet of that? You know, a lot of people get into real estate investing. They just do it and they're selfish, they're greedy, but you're writing a book. You have this podcast. Do you like giving back? Is this what you feel teaching? Do you like to educate? Yeah, I do. And I think that I didn't realize how much I liked giving back until I started the podcast. I originally got into podcasting because I thought you could make a lot of money in podcasting. And then as I started to actually make change, you know, cause change and help people improve their lives and people were actually learning from what I was saying, I realized that the dollars didn't matter. I didn't care about that actually at all. And it was really the impact that I was having on other people. And it's interesting because you do good for other people and it comes back to you in more than you even gave. And so, and I'm not even talking just dollars. I'm talking about in forms of like motivation and things like that. Just hearing these types of things from other people and how much is helping them has in turn helped me help myself. And so I think that is the biggest reason that I keep doing what I do is, is to really just help other people kind of be that resource you know, everything, almost every single thing I do, I'm the only one in my family that's ever done it. So I didn't have somebody in my family that I could go and talk to. I'm the first one to go to college, first one to make any type of investment, first one to do podcasting. I mean, I don't have somebody I can rely on. So I guess one of the other things that I like to try and do is be that resource or mentor that I can or when I can for the people listening to the show that I didn't have. Michael, for those in the audience that want to connect with you after the show, where is the best place to find you? You can always find me on LinkedIn under Michael Stoller and that's S-T-O-H-L-E-R. And my website is gatewayp.e, as in private equity, gatewayp.e.com. I will be sure to put a link to both of those resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. All right. Thank you, Robert. Take care. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.